This is the Evergreen Empire. Green grow the forests and fair flow the streams. The gentle deer grazes, the wild blossom gleams. From ocean wave raging to mountain serene. All nature's proclaiming our land's evergreen. Welcome to Columbia Conversations. I'm Felix Bunnell, editor of Columbia Magazine for the Washington State Historical Society. On this episode, we speak with Megan Ackerman, historian for the Olympia Tumwater Foundation and author of a piece in the winter 2021-2022 edition of Columbia Magazine about women and the Olympia Brewing Company. It's pretty fun to look at. I have recreated about 20 of her recipes. Oh, wow. None of them have ever turned out. I spoke with Megan Ackerman by phone and asked her to begin with the basics of Olympia Brewing Company history. Leopold Schmidt, who founded the Olympia Brewing Company, was a German immigrant. He made his way, like many Germans, to the West Coast. He made multiple stops along the way. He, he started out immigrating to Missouri, and then he made his way to Montana uh, during the gold rush, before, uh, before the copper rush, and was operating a brewery there for about 20 years before he visited Olympia. And then decided to, you know, pick up shop and and move to the Northwest. So Olympia started out as the Capital Brewing Company in 1896. It changed its name and adopted the It's the Water slogan, both in 1902. And then it shut down in 19, on January 1st, 1916, um, because of statewide prohibition. And um, then opened up again in 19, early 1934 as uh, prohibition was repealed. Stayed in Schmidt family ownership up until 1983 when Pabst bought it. And then um, the, the whole consolidation of mega breweries and, and the, the brands that we still know today is, is massively convoluted. But um, Pabst owned the Olympia brand. And it, it sort of changed hands over over the ensuing decades, but Pabst still owns the Olympia brand. But in 2003, when the facility actually closed in Tumwater, the facility was owned by Miller, and Miller closed the plant down. So it's been closed, uh, no longer brewing Olympia beer in Tumwater or in Washington at all since 2003. Um, uh, so. Uh, I guess technically Olympia beer, yeah, ceased to exist in 1983. Um, but yeah, so it's still, it was brewed up until last year or this year, 2021, early 2021. Pabst still owns the brand and was contract brewing it out with Miller. Um, and they, uh, I guess, were not making the profit that they wanted. And so it is, they have discontinued making Olympia beer for the first time in 125 years with the oh. exception of prohibition. So this will be the first Christmas then and the first New Year's celebration without fresh Oli in a long time, I guess. Yes. Wow, that's bizarre. What um what is I mean, you know, I 
maybe this is kind of a dumb question, I guess. Um, I have a bunch of dumb questions. That's kind of the theme of the show. The show. Um, so the uh, so if you had to describe Olympia beer, like the flavor, the taste, or the kind of beer it is, where does it fit into that the spectrum of other beers that are either still available now or that were available, say, 30, 40 years ago when there were a lot of local beers still being made in, uh, in and around the West? Uh, well, I'll, I will admit, first and foremost, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I actually don't. And <laughs> I don't like beer uh, generally, but okay. uh, I've had enough Olympia to be able to describe it. And it's definitely a watery lager. <laughs> uh, people love to, to tell me their memories related to it. And it usually starts out with, I used to love drinking Olympia in the summertime, you know, floating down the river because you could have a whole bunch and not get drunk. <laughs> it was... <laughs> A um, for its time, especially, uh, was a relatively low calorie um, and low alcoholic content beer, and that it, it always was a light beer. They always called it that. Um, a, I believe the the very first um, line of Olympia beer, if you want to call it that, uh, label of it was pale export, even though it was basically just a light lager, like a Bud Light mm. or a. Budweiser, I guess, but more maybe along the taste lines of Bud Light, brewers had to reserve 15% of what they made to go overseas during World War II. So then soldiers became much more acclimated to this lighter beer. Then when they came home, combination of um, that generation being more okay with drinking socially um, and and really rejecting prohibition, drinking more responsibly and drinking at home versus in saloons, and then coupled with just being more used to lighter beers. That's why the the uh, at least for me the image of uh, you know a working class light beer that somebody's dad or grandpa drank for decades and just was dedicated to one brand it becomes prevalent during this time because that's really that generation of people. Yeah, I mean, my memory goes back. I'm, I'm in my early 50s. My memory goes back to probably the 70s, 80s, and it was sort of, the beers all sort of seemed the same. They all kind of seemed like they were, you know, mm -hmm. whether it was Pabst or Budweiser or Rainier or Lucky or Olympia, they all kind of looked the same color, mm -hmm. and they seemed like they were just mm -hmm. consumed. There was a lot of brand loyalty, um, and there wasn't a lot of variety, and there wasn't really a lot of um, exotic beers being uh, offered anywhere, I guess unless you're looking for it. And maybe you certainly didn't see that on television or in, or in print advertisements back in the 70s and 80s, until maybe the late 80s. But No, it huh. it really didn't exist until the until the 80s with the craft beer huh. Interesting. One more dumb question. What did they do during Prohibition at the Olympia Brewery? They did all kinds of stuff. Um, the actual facility that made the beer, it for a couple of years became a fruit juice processing plant. So the uh, Leopold Schmidt, who he died in 1914, right? Um, just a couple months before prohibition was passed actually, but his son who took over the Schmidt um, family generally, they had a plan in place. They owned multiple breweries besides Olympia and they had a plant in Salem, Oregon. And so they started in Salem with this, pilot program of making Loganberry juice called Loju. And they uh, sold well enough that they decided to go forth and they made some, some of 
oh no, they didn't make any Loganberry juice in Tumwater, but they made this apple juice beverage called apple juice in Salem as well. And then they decided that that's what they would do in Tumwater. So for a couple of years, they made, uh, th there was an apple juice and, and sort of one that they carbonated that was more like a sparkling cider. Um, and then for multiple reasons that had to do with um, unions and World War I sugar prices uh, and different things like that, that eventually shut down in 1922. And then the actual uh, facility hasn't been used to make a beverage since, but they owned stock in creameries like a lot of brewers did. And they had um, a creamery and an ice plant, or at least a cold storage. They had hotel businesses, actually. Um, Peter G. Schmidt, the second president of Olympia Brewing, he sort of founded a consortium. I think it started just as five hotels. He and his brother owned a couple hotels and then them and a few other Washington hotel owners got together and made Western Hotels, uh, which is now Weston International. Oh yeah, no, wait wait a second. So Weston, Weston, the big hotel chain began as an offshoot of a Schmidt family business? It did. Huh, I had no idea. Okay. And it was headquartered in Seattle for a long time. I know until probably sometime yeah. in the 30, 40 years ago, I think they moved elsewhere, but that's, that's, uh, I had no idea. Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody else really knows that either. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I think they also had um, bus lines, but yeah, so they um, mostly kept to the food and beverage industry, like a lot of other brewers, um, but they had a lot of things going on as a family. You know, they just, they did just fine financially. Mm. Um, and then, but you know, beer was always number one. So as soon as that repeal was on the horizon, they uh, wanted to build a new facility and get up and running as fast as possible. And they did. They had some backing by Emil Sick. Plus they, um, you know, they had ads in the paper and they sold shares of stock for a dollar and had enough capital to build an entirely new facility to have the first beer to be able to go out uh, on the market January 1934. And so where do women fit into this story? I mean, this is the, the larger story of the brewery. You've, you've told us here pretty well. But where does, mm -hmm. where, in your research, what did you find the, what the role of women was from the earliest days up until the, uh, I guess, the final days of the brewery in the work that you've done? Mm -hmm. So the earliest days are still kind of a mystery. I wish that I had more answers for before Prohibition. Um, you know, the article itself talks about the Schmidt women before I get into women during World War II because I've really never been able to find anything about women working at the brewery before Prohibition, hmm. which is not uncommon for breweries. Breweries did not really hire women, but I have seen photographs of women with groups um, in front of the brewery or they all seem to be at the bottle works. I have no idea who those women are, if they maybe worked in packaging or I, I have seen also an image from a book about Rainier that had women who would put the foil on the bottleneck, hmm. you know, in packaging. So I don't know if if there were women hired um, at the brewery to do something like that. That's something that I have not been able to uncover. Um, but women did work at the brewery starting officially, I guess, post-Prohibition. There, there was at least one woman who was uh, Peter G. Schmidt's private secretary during Prohibition, who also then worked at the brewery. But Women were working in the office as soon as repeal 
um, and the brewery got up and running, but really it wasn't until World War II with the labor shortage that there were about 10 women working in the office and about 10 women who were recycling and recrimping bottle caps because of the metal shortage. <laughs> um, and then uh, when World War II ended, the union that represented bottlers disallowed women. So it seems from what I was able to cobble together that those women just lost their jobs. They didn't shift over to the office or anything. Yeah. Um, and then really from, uh, from about 1945 to 1975, the women that worked at the brewery were all in the office. And then um, in the mid-70s with Title VII, I believe it was, um, but with the Equal Rights Act, um, women were then again allowed to work in production. So they were, they just started to hire women, um, in, mostly in the bottle house, um, in packaging. Um, and it was still very, very male dominated. Um, and then really, I think that started, I wouldn't say ramp up, but it was after Pabst bought the brewery that, you know, more women were working in production and there were women in the gift shop. Um, and I, I think that there were some women tour guides, but it was still very heavily women were in the office and, and men worked in production and, and brewing. There were never any women brewmasters. Now, I mean, in, in terms of the other research that might be available at other breweries in other parts of the country or maybe other parts of the world, do we know how this stacks up against those other breweries? Was was Olympia more or less welcoming of female staff than other breweries or about the same? Um, from what I've seen, at least as far as the very early years, um, the 70s, that is, um, at, women going back into production or into production, I guess, for the first time, Olympia was a little bit ahead of its time. Hmm. Um, and I, I just, my only reference for that was there is a, um, a recent book out about women in brewing. And there was a quote from a woman who worked at the Theodore Hams uh, brewery, which Olympia acquired in 1974. And she said in that book that, women and she was a, a chemist i believe so she was doing lab work and she wasn't even allowed on the plant floor to collect the samples that she needed to test huh. and that changed when olympia acquired hams you know they could at least go get their own samples um and so uh you know i i would say that they were maybe maybe a, a, a foot ahead of the rest but it, it seems that it was average to, I think, that the brewing industry as a whole, based on everything I've read about women who pioneered craft brewing, that really was still a, a very male-dominated and sexist industry. Um, so I, I can't say for certain that Olympia was like, you know, leagues ahead of anybody else, but I don't think it was anybody. Yeah, it wasn't worse than anybody else for sure. <laughs> And then nowadays, in the current sort of brewing industry, which is much more diffuse and diverse, I imagine, same some of the same issues still, or is it a little more uh, integrated than than it was in terms of gender? Um, from what I have read, it's it is much more diverse, but there's always room for improvement, um, and that there is even still apparently just a lot of 
um, incredulous men <laughs> that are surprised by women who brew beer or, you know, just maybe with unconscious bias, assume that somebody running a brewery or um, a pub is doing so with her male partner. But generally, um, I think it is more accepted, at least in the Northwest, um, that women are entering brewing and cider making much more often than they were. And there was one person you mentioned in your story in Columbia that I, I was interested in. This is a woman named is Edie, who had the some of the um, kind of recipes and the newsletter sort of stuff. Tell me about her. So Edie um, is one of my favorites. She was, I guess her, her, I don't know what her official title really ever was. She's referred to as the home economist or the coffee maker. She had been working at a local high school as, you know, a, a lunch lady, I guess. I don't know if she was, <laughs> I don't know what the proper term for that is yeah. these days, but I think, you know, she was making lunches at the high school <laughs> and one of the vice presidents, one of the Schmidt family members um, somehow knew her or heard of her and asked her to work at the brewery. And so she started working there in 1957, I think. And she made lunches for the executives um, at least twice a week, you know, when they had lunch meetings. And otherwise, uh, she brewed coffee for the office twice a day. And um, I imagine did some sort of decorating or other kinds of things around the office. I believe her job was full time. So I really don't know what they filled her time with. But um, she stayed there until 1971. And in that time, yes, she had her own column in the It's the Water News newsletter, uh, which was basically every edition was like its own magazine. So it, it was really nothing to shake a stick at. Um, but she had Edie's Gourmet and would, she has a lot of recipes in there that don't include Olympia beer, but a lot of them were made with Olympia beer. She also had, you know, fashion and holiday advice and uh, decoration ideas and had how to uh, style food, things like that. It's um, it's pretty fun to look at. I have recreated about twenty of her recipes. Oh wow! None of them have ever turned out. <laughs> <laughs> and um, honestly, I think it's just because food from the sixties is disgusting. But <laughs> I try. What um, now? Was she doing stuff for public consumption, or was everything she was doing for internal consumption in terms of those articles and recipes and stuff? It was internal. There were at least one time that she did go on the local TV station and made uh, a recipe for steak. Um, but that was the only mention of it, but no, she, I think just did it for fun. She just was um, enthusiastic about cooking and homemaking and found her niche at work. And what was her full name? Edith Bryn. Bryn. Okay. And so now back to these recipes that you tried, was there one that was particularly disgusting or particularly surprising that didn't turn out? Or what, what are we, what kinds of recipes are we talking about? Um, so one that I made was a Roquefort and ketchup and onion sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and I'm not a fan of blue cheese anyway, but I was going to take one for the team. And it was, you know, Roquefort blue cheese mixed with some Olympia beer. So it was basically like a bread mm. and then yeah ketchup and 
white onions <laughs> and it was horrible. <laughs> um, most of the recipes that I've made that are sweet, that don't have beer, they're just very, very, very sweet. You know, they have a lot of sugar by today's standards. <laughs> now, wait, that so that onion, that onion dip spread stuff, though, wasn't that, I mean, isn't that meant to be consumed with a really ice cold, like tall glass of Olympia? Probably. Yeah. So, but you didn't do it that way. You didn't. You didn't go for the cold beer along. I with didn't. It. I mean, okay. she didn't. She did not have that in her instructions. Okay. And I don't know okay. that an ice cold glass of Olympia beer would have salvaged that sandwich. All right. So, uh, what's next for you with the research you're doing on the Olympia Brewery? I have been working very slowly at a glacial pace of turning my master's thesis on the history of the brewery into book into a, you know, a more well-rounded book. So, um, mostly that. Do you have, do you have a timeline for that, for when that's, when that book's going to be published or what's the next step with that or? Hopefully within the next few years, I've, um, worked with a, a publisher a little bit back and forth. I'm still working on some edits, but, um, hopefully, hopefully that will be done within the next few years. I've said every year for the last five years. Yeah. I mean, who, who's not working on a history project on the side of, of, of our audience? Probably probably everyone listening to this podcast, or 90% probably are in the same boat in terms of having a book that's, you know, on the horizon at some point. So, well, I'm, I'm really glad we're able to share at least part of the story in the winter 2021-2022 edition of Columbia. And thanks for writing that piece for us. And thanks for joining us for this episode of Columbia Conversations. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you to Megan Ackerman for speaking with me for this episode of Columbia Conversations from the Washington State Historical Society. Her article about the Olympia Brewing Company is in the winter 2021-2022 edition of Columbia Magazine. For more information about Columbia Magazine or to subscribe, please visit WashingtonHistory.org. I'm Felix Bunnell.